Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Erica Slater, and today I'm joined by Liz Lenevy and Mary Simon and Elizabeth McNulty are remote. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday. We want to say that we are so thankful to our subscribers. All the comments and feedback that we've received from our listeners is awesome. And it makes us enthusiastic about continuing this podcast and continuing to share our stories and our practical skills. So today we are going to tackle legal writing. Amy Gunn could not be with us, but she gave us full authority to go forward since she told us that she doesn't do a ton of her own legal writing these days. That mostly falls on Liz. I love it. (laughs) I've told all the ladies to think of their stories about when legal writing has gone wrong or you have received an opposing brief that is just ridiculous. Uh, So we can talk to our listeners about maybe how to avoid those pitfalls. So let's get started. So when I think about my own legal writing, it really kind of had an evolution. Like many lawyers, I was a liberal arts major. I majored in history, political science, and economics, and wrote a lot of essays, researched essays that had page lengths and things like that. So when I got to law school, technical writing or legal writing was not something that I was as familiar with, although I had the researching skills. So I did pretty poorly, actually, in my first semester of legal research and writing. The learning curve was steep for me. I picked it up the second semester for sure, but I learned a lot along the way. And most of the ways that my writing is successful today come from that hard learning curve of working out all of the things that I was doing wrong, flowery language, writing content just for length, or you know, thinking that the more content that I could come up with in a brief or essay was making my point stronger. So we'll talk a lot about this today, but one of the biggest things that I have found in how my writing has changed over the last decade is really the difference between how I edit my writing, how I approach a writing project, and really how brief I can get it. I probably write content-wise, a third of the content that I may have written about 10 years ago, just because I know so much more about how to get the point across that I need to in fewer words, and also really putting stock into only the points that I need to make to the judge or to my opposing counsel, if it's a letter to them, and keeping things brief. So in that vein, Liz, what are your tips as far as thinking about writing in the sense of your audience, your tone, who you're writing for? So I think the first thing before you start writing is you have to think, who is going to read this? Who am I writing this for? And so from a legal perspective, there's probably three primary audiences that we have. The first one, the big one, the one we always think about are judges, what is a judge going to think about this? The, the second one is probably more geared towards younger attorneys, but you're going to be doing a lot of writing for other attorneys, for partners, for whatever senior you work for. And so that's probably going to come more in the form of a memorandum. And then there's also quite a bit of writing for clients, depending on the type of work you do. 
I don't write a ton of letters to clients, but I do write enough that I can tell there is certainly a different tone than what I'd use for those two previous groups. So let's let's start with the big one, a judge. What are you trying to do when you write anything to a judge? And the answer to that should always be persuade them. You're not writing to them for fun. It's certainly not fun for them. They're doing their job. And so you want to be persuasive. And I think the number one rule for being persuasive is keeping it brief. Because when you can keep it brief, you can keep it short, you are showing to the court that your argument is so strong, you don't need any of this fluff. You don't need any filler. You have your point and you're about to make it and it's going to be a good one and they're going to rule for you. And so that's, that's what I have tried to do with my writing is keep it as brief and short as possible and really focus on the issues that matter with whatever argument I'm trying to make in front of the court. Yeah, Liz, and when you're talking about brevity, you're also telling the court that you respect their time. If a court gives you a 15-page limit on a motion, say it's federal court where page limits are common, and you get your point across in eight, you've told the court that, like you said, not only is your argument strong, but I respect your time, and I'm not going to say what I need to say three times. Exactly. And I think that that can even be a powerful statement when your opposing counsel has written something particularly lengthy. It's sort of like that My Cousin Vinny scene, where the prosecutor gets up there and gives this long, passionate, let's be real, flowery opening, and then Cousin Vinny gets up there and says, yeah, everything that guy just said was bullshit. Now, I don't recommend that, but it's certainly brief. It got to the point. The jury understood (laughs) what he was saying. So for the court, just be brief and be persuasive. And, And I think that a big difference between writing for a court versus writing for someone within your office or even writing for a client is that when you are writing for for someone, a, a non-judge, then it probably is more straight to the facts. And, and I don't mean that to say that you are not being factual with the court, but I mean that when, at least when I write a memo for another attorney, I'm going to lay out the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I'm not going to try to spin it in any way. I'm laying it out as frankly and honestly as I can, because we are supposed to look at that from an objective perspective. And that means knowing all the good and the bad facts. Now, when you write for a judge, you have to probably include those bad facts in there somewhere, but you can write in a way that will mitigate those bad facts and highlight your good facts. I don't think that's a good strategy when you're writing for people within your office or writing memos for yourself if you're going to go back and look at something within a case. I think you need to own up to the bad facts and and really make sure you understand them. That way, when it does come time to mitigate them, you know every single detail about that fact inside and out, up, down, sideways, everything about it, and you know how to attack it. And so the last big group of people you will probably be doing some writing to, and of course this depends on the type of law that you do, are clients. And within the type of practice we have doing plaintiff's personal injury, I don't do a whole lot of big writing to my clients. I would much prefer to speak to them on the phone and if possible in person. And so not a lot goes into those letters. And so, Erica, I'm actually going to shoot this one back to you because you have more experience with defense work, which is much more client writing 
oriented? Yeah, um, from my days practicing on the defense side, I especially ghost wrote a lot of letters to the client. After any deposition or hearing happened in the case, we would always report back to our client. And I worked in an insurance defense firm, so our client was the insurance company or the adjuster or claims manager at the insurance company managing the litigation. And as well, the insured client, which was either a company or a person. So we were updating them on the litigation and what had just happened in the deposition or the testimony that we gathered from a witness or explaining the parameters of the outcome of a motion hearing or something like that. For that type of writing, brevity is not necessarily the attribute that you're striving for. You're striving for completeness and correct analysis. By writing the client when you're on the defense side, or if you have any client that is not just a traditional person who has a personal injury lawsuit, you are writing that client to document their file for them and their company. And if you put all of your letters together, it should really be a story of the litigation and a on-the-spot analysis of how the new information affects their position, how it maybe affects the settlement value of the case, how it affects the thinking about taking the case to trial or not. So the really important thing is to give the facts up front and then really get in-depth in your analysis and do some really solid research to make sure your analysis is correct. And in that case, especially if you're a younger attorney, you may be writing that letter for the partner's signature that will then be passed on to the client. So in that case, you're not just writing for the client and thinking about your aims in updating the client, but also you want to make sure that your writing is complete, accurate, also objective, because you know painting a rosy picture for the client is never going to help them in litigation. That is going to mislead them and not inform them of their legal position in the case. But you're also writing for that partner, and then you want them to be impressed by your writing and, and show them that you've thought of the different parameters that come up in your analysis. And that includes issue spotting, making sure to thoroughly research those issues, and communicating that concisely, but completely in your letter. So Liz, when we are thinking about writing in different jurisdictions, what comes to mind for me is the differences in how I write for judges in federal court versus judges in state court. I find federal court briefing much more formal, even formatting. I stick pretty much to a traditional legal memorandum formatting. And in state court, I often know the judges much more personally, and I know what their style is, and I really usually play to that style as far as my tone. There are even state judges that I include pictures and diagrams or you know visual representations of our evidence because that is something I know they really pay attention to. What do you think about that, or what's been your experience writing in those different jurisdictions? I agree with everything you just said. Uh, I think federal court in general is just more formal, not just the writing, but the court itself. Uh, and I can speak to having been to the the federal district court here in St. Louis, as well as multiple state courts throughout Missouri and Illinois. There is just a different vibe 
in a federal court. State court, it has more of a relaxed feeling to it. I, I, I just I think most attorneys who have practiced enough in both of those different venues would agree with that. And so that sort of reflects in my writing. When I do write a brief for a federal judge, I'm going to follow the formula that I was taught in law school. And and that is a very specific, this sentence goes here, then this sentence goes here, and your analysis goes here, and you put your facts here, and these are the specific headings you need to use. And that's because not only in federal court is it more of a a serious tone, I feel, but you are often constricted to page limits. So you want to make sure that really every single sentence, every single word counts. With state court, not that we don't take it seriously or that we are playing more fast and loose with our writing, but because it is more relaxed, I I feel we can be a little bit more creative in how we are presenting our arguments and the information to the judge. So like you mentioned, photos, diagrams, something that I have found very effective in state court that I don't know if I'd be comfortable doing with writing in federal court is bullet points. When I'm in front of a state court judge and I am listing all of the various facts that I want to present to the court, the quickest way I can do that is in bullet points. And I I have done that, and I think it's been successful, and I think it gets the information to them quicker, but I also realize it is a pretty informal way to present something in what would otherwise be a very formal document. Another thing that I've done only in state court but never in federal court are charts. There was a brief I had to do a couple years ago where there was a bunch of testimony I had to analyze, and I had to show the various ways that this testimony compared to other testimony, and instead of just listing everything, I put it into a chart that the judges could look and say, oh, right here, this is where you've cited this, and it matches with with what we're looking at, you know, under this subject or, or heading. And I thought it was a very effective way to present the information to the judge, a very concise way to present it to the judge. But it was, again, a very informal thing that I really would be hesitant to do in federal court. Elizabeth, I know that you spend a lot of time writing for the other attorneys that you're working with. What advice do you have for writing for others or ghostwriting, if you will? So I've been doing that for a long time now, ever since I was a clerk. And I think that it's definitely a difficult thing to do in the beginning because you're not really sure what that attorney's tone is or what they're going for. I started after my first year of law school. And while I had learned a lot in legal writing or legal practice, it's a lot different when you're actually writing for stuff that's going to get filed or sent to clients or sent to opposing counsel. So I think that one of the best tips or, you know, advice I can give to you is to look for other examples of what that attorney has written in the past, because I think as students, especially, it feels really foreign to like copy and paste part of what someone else has written into what you're writing, because, you know, you you can't plagiarize anything. But I think that as attorneys, sometimes you don't need to reinvent the wheel and you can use what's already out there because that's what's most efficient. Time is very valuable. So you don't always need to be coming up with your own, you know, 
legal standard in a motion for summary judgment because that's been written, you know, a hundred times in our office. So I think that that's something that you definitely need to go look for examples, ask the attorneys that you're working for if there's similar cases that you can go look and pull from to get an idea of what they're looking for because they may not necessarily have time to sit down with you and explain to you how they like to write, but you should be able to kind of glean from what they've already done and what's already been filed how to at least approach what you're doing. I think another good tip is something that we've already kind of touched on. What you should always do is try to be as clear and as concise as possible. One, because I think that that's what good writing is all about. But two, if whoever you're writing for likes to put in some kind of stylistic language, that's the way they can go back and do it themselves instead of you trying to guess, you know, what kind of flowery language or really aggressive language they might want to add in later, you can just let them take care of that. While writing for other people, I've been able to get my own tone and how I like to write things. And I think that I've found that they kind of end up merging. You take bits and pieces from everyone that you work with or all the stuff that you read and you kind of take that and you use that in your own writing or you see what really doesn't work in some really bad, bad writing. So I think that another important thing that you need to ask for is feedback because as you know, law clerks, first year associates, you might not necessarily get that, but you should ask for it and not be offended when you get a lot of red lines and stuff like that because it happens. It happened to me on my first week clerking and it you see it and you're like, whoa, I, you know, I took that from something that already been filed, but everyone has their own way of doing things. So you can't take it personally. And every kind of opportunity like that is a learning opportunity. And if you're not getting feedback, always go back and just look at what's been filed because you can compare what you wrote to what ended up getting filed. And I, I mean, I used to do that as a clerk all the time, and I think that that can be invaluable. You kind of have to teach yourself sometimes, and I think that that is really just the easiest way to go about it. So, Or instead of going to the partner or the attorney that you're writing for and just cold asking for feedback, taking that extra step of looking at what you wrote, looking at what was filed, and formulating your specific questions, like, can you tell me why you changed this, or can you give me some feedback, you know, regarding how I could have approached this better? I think that goes a long way to showing that you're helping yourself and not just asking like, hey, take time out of whatever you're doing and teach me how to write. (laughs) Totally. A quick story. When I was just starting out, like I think I had been practicing for maybe two months, three months at the most. I submitted something that I had drafted to one of the partners at the firm. And a a couple days later, I got it back. He handed it back to me. And it said C- at the top, circled, sort of like a... A A grade school paper. Yeah. (laughs) Like he had sat down, read through my writing, and decided that it was C- quality. And I am an A student. (laughs) I have always been an A student. I, I don't recognize Cs. And I, I took it very personally when I first got it. And being in a position now where I do a lot of reviewing for other people's writing that they now submit to me, I would never give someone a grade. I don't think that that's a 
healthy way to give feedback, but it's the way that it was given to me. And in that moment, I decided to take that feedback, look at what I had done, and really try to understand what changes he had made. And he had he had been very thorough with what I had done incorrectly or I could do better on in future writing. And and from that point forward, you know, having taken that feedback and really applied it to my future writing, I, I did much better. And so I think something important out of that is your first draft, especially your first first draft, it's going to be rough. It's going to be bad. No one is born good at legal writing. And so it's just a matter of, of taking your lumps when you get some bad feedback, but certainly learning from it. With that being said, Mary, I know that you have a lot of clerks working with you. And what advice do you have or how do you approach giving feedback to clerks or what kind of expectations do you set with them? So I think that I have a different perspective on this than all of you as well, because I think that I have at one point or another, I think I have written something for maybe every attorney in this office while I clerked because I clerked here all through law school. And it's crazy to learn that there is no standard format for how you need to write anything because every attorney has their own style. That being said, I think the biggest uh, big ticket items I've learned in legal writing is have a goal, know your tone, know your audience and keep it simple. You know, the quote, I just pulled it up because I was taught that as well is don't use a $5 word when a 50 cent word will do. Just get your point across. You're writing for a judge, but a judge is a person. So they're a person. You don't need to get out the thesaurus and look up very complicated ways of saying, you know, injury, if it's an injury, you just write out what happened to your client, write out what you're asking for. And I can't tell you the amount of times I've worked with attorneys who are more experienced than me and taken the advice they've given me, applied it to my own legal writing and successfully gotten a little bit less red lines each time and time until you're confident enough that you can maybe have a colleague look at something for smaller errors or something before you want to file. But as far as law clerks go, you know, I have told them, I I absolutely love working with law clerks. I'm not far removed from being a law clerk. So I appreciate the struggles and questions that come up that law clerks ask. And one of the things that I tell them out the gate that we haven't really talked about yet is formatting. Formatting in terms of having, you know, everything's the same font, everything's the same size, everything's organized. You don't turn in a brief or a memo to an attorney with formatting errors. Just don't do it. And obviously things happen and sometimes there's a typo or something like that. But I don't tell them in terms of don't ever give me anything like that. I just say future reference when you're working for an attorney who's more senior than than I am or even in the future when you work for an attorney, just make sure your formatting is locked in because that's something that you don't need someone to explain to you. You know what proper formatting looks like. The second thing that I always tell them as, as far as keep it simple is sometimes I tell law clerks, if you've been working on this motion for longer than X amount of time and you're still stuck, come ask me about it. And I think that that's something that was helpful for me when I was a clerk that I was told. And most of the time it's because they actually do know how to write it. It's just that they get too caught up in deciding whether or not it's what the attorney wants. So it always helps to put some time limits on clerks of when you expect things back by, how long it should take them to do something. 
And most importantly, it's just get your point across as clear and as in as few words as possible. I've just found that to be some of the most successful briefs in this office that I've read. It's phenomenal to see how effective writing can be if it's done properly. Yeah, and Mary, to your point, two of the lessons that I remember learning when I was clerking at our firm when I was in law school, what you said about not turning in anything with formatting errors or something like that, anytime you're writing for a more senior attorney or anytime you are turning in any sort of project that is going to have someone else's eyes on it in litigation, make sure you are turning in something that you would feel confident being filed directly with the court. And, and as long as you follow that rule, and that's, to me, the no drafts rule, never turn in what you believe is a draft. Always turn in what you believe is a final, ready to file. And I mean as you know, meticulous as make sure the certificate of service is correct. Make sure the case caption is correct. Make sure everything looks the way it should to be turned in directly to the court. An important thing to learn, and quite quite frankly, this is much more apparent to me now that you know clerks and other attorneys write work for me to review, never turn in something with questions. Never say, here's my motion briefing, but I have this question. Because an attorney never wants to spend time reviewing something and looking at it and then going back and learning that it's undone. So bring your questions early, incorporate those questions into your work, and then turn in your project or briefing or writing, even if it's a client letter. You know, how do I approach this topic? What's this tone? We're changing our analysis on this issue. Do I address our previous analysis? Ask those questions first instead of turning in something saying, oh, and by the way, I didn't know how to deal with that, so let me know if you want me to change it. Don't take that approach ever. It, it's a waste of your time, and it's a waste of the attorney's time that you're working with. So That drives me crazy. I know. It's I, tough. I stress whenever I get a document sent to me, and I open it, and the first thing I see are four little comment bubbles off to the side, and I go, oh, no. They, this is, <laughs> is going to require so much overhauling by me. And it immediately puts me into a bad mood. So <laughs> certainly make sure you are turning in something that you don't have a ton of questions on. I'd just like to add that all of this sounds like very scary. We're saying, don't do this, do this, don't do this. I think that one thing that I have learned is that like you are going to make mistakes. It's going to happen. But the important thing is to not make the same one again. When I was a clerk, I was drafting discovery for Erica and I did not Uh-oh. put pa- I didn't put page numbers on oh. it. And you can bet that I have never, ever since drafted something without page numbers. And I hear your voice in my head every time I go in to add the page numbers. So it's just like nitpicky stuff like that. It's okay when you mess up, but just like learn the lesson and don't do it again. I'm so glad I could be responsible for that lesson in your legal writing. Sounds very important. (laughs) It was important. It's funny. Sloppy drafting. Yeah. You know, my older sister is a, by profession, a managing editor of a trade journal and publication for the oil industry. So if you think our technical writing is dry, you should check out the 
oil and gas processing industry. She's been a writer and a literature major. She's done that her whole life. She's incredible at it. She used to edit my papers, my gosh, when I was in grade school, high school, college even. Once I got to law school, I couldn't send her my stuff to edit because that was against the ethical rules. But she always taught me when I was writing because she would edit something for me and send it back to me and then we talk about it. And I would always start arguing or like defending my writing and she would just cut me off and say, hey, you got to remember when the person who you're writing for is reading this, you're not going to be there to argue. You can't defend your writing orally. So keep in mind that everything that you need to say and the point that you need to make has to be on that paper. So if somebody else gives you feedback and say, you know, I didn't get this from that, listen to them. It's really important and it will help redirect your writing better. And having that feedback regularly helps a ton. You know, one of the attorneys who I worked with very early on at this office, and she's not here anymore, she spent a great deal of time with me explaining to me what changes need to be made and why. And some of the more important substantive changes really had to do with just the structuring of an argument. And I think that's something that you just learn over time. And Elizabeth, to your point, I never expect a law clerk to give me something that at the end of the day, that's it. And I make no changes and I file it because there's just not the same level of experience. That kind of goes to your point, Erica, is I think I'm putting it in the most concise and straightforward way and having a second set of eyes to read it and say, the only thing I see that wasn't addressed is this. And I feel like that could play a part in the outcome of this argument. Hearing someone say that, even though it sounds so obvious to you after you've read it and wrote it and looked over it a hundred times, a set of fresh eyes looking at something before you file it can never hurt. Yeah. Okay. So this is the point in the episode where I think we need to visit the legal writing graveyard and talk about all those pet peeves that we have in writing, mixing up words. So I teach almost every attorney that I work with about this. Word has a function that will pick out your passive voice turn it on. It will, by proxy, improve your writing 100%. If you can change all your passive voice to active voice, your writing will improve dramatically. So that's one of my pet peeves when when I get something with a lot of passive voice in it. How about you, Liz? Any any word mix-up or things like that you've ever encountered in your legal writing, maybe your husband's resume writing. (laughs) Oh, Steve. Um, (laughs) I'll make two points here. As far as pet peeves, my biggest pet peeve is when you use too many words to say something that you could have said in one or two words. It's sort of like what you said, Mary, about a $5 word when you could have used a 50 cent. I, years ago, was reading an article about good writing. And in the article, they had a chart and one side of the chart says just say no, and the other side of the chart says try. And, and so the just say no part, and I, I brought it with me to today's recording, the just say no part is examples of just really flowery, unnecessarily long phrases that lawyers really like to use because I think we like to hear ourselves talk or sound smarter. So, for example, instead of saying in the present case or in the instant case or in the case at bar or in this case, just say here just say here. <laughs> it's it's so much quicker. And, and I really should just 
make a copy of this chart and hand it out to all of our, our new law clerks when they start of, of an example of you don't need to use a bunch of words to say something you can get to quickly. And, and a, a strategy I do is when I draft something, I'll leave it for a couple of hours and then I'll come back and I make it a specific point to start pulling words out or how can I make this shorter? I have a, a general rule of thumb that I think in every paragraph, I can probably pull out 20 words. I bet I can make it 20 words shorter. Obviously, you never want to sacrifice the argument, but you are doing this to specifically make the argument more concise, make it quicker to read. It is respectful for the court, and it's just more effective writing. So that's my pet peeve, is just make things short. You don't need to make it sound like a lawyer talking on TV. Just make it, keep it simple. As far as often mixed up words, I think the one that I'm always scared I'm going to do is instead of saying public policy, I'm, I'm terrified I'm going to say pubic policy. I'm afraid <laughs> I'm going to drop that L and it's going to be an obscene word in my <laughs> writing. And so that's something I try to keep an extra eye out for. But the story that Erica had sort of hinted at and just for the record, I texted my husband before we started recording just to make sure it was okay for me to tell the story. And he said, of course, laugh at my misfortune. But That was generous of you. Yeah. But he, uh, well, you know, we're in COVID. I have to spend a lot of time with him home. I'm trying to make sure my roommate's happy. So several years ago when we first started dating, I don't know. God, it's been almost 10 years. Jesus. So when we first started dating, I had screwed something up and I felt really awful. And he told me this story to make me feel better about a time that he had screwed something up in writing. And on his resume, I think he, he might have been in high school at the time or freshman, sophomore in college. So very young. And he meant to write the word cooperating onto his resume, which is great verb, great verb to include on a resume. But he did not double check his uh, spelling of it before he turned this resume into a potential employer and it ended up saying coopering which for those of you who may not be aware coopering is another term for barrel making and he was specifically <laughs> asked about his barrel making skills as a joke but it's certainly a story that, that he remembers as far as just being careful with your writing and it's something that I remember now when uh, when I'm looking at words that could easily be mixed up. So, you know, just just give yourself some time and go back and read something a little bit more carefully because I guarantee you'll miss it on the first try, but you might catch it on the second. Oh, I've talked about sever injuries instead of severe, severe. injuries. <laughs> and of course, I've been on a trail instead of going to trial. <laughs> Probably spent some time on a field instead of filing something. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Mary Elizabeth, what are your pet peeves? One I saw recently was just like in a brief, it was just random words were bolded. And like I honestly don't understand how that can be like effective at all. They were bolded in caps. And I just don't understand why that lawyer <laughs> thought it was a good idea to be like extra persuasive and like <laughs> bold in caps. So I thought that that was pretty ridiculous. I don't have a lot like of shouting peeves. in your writing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't love to use flowerly language, but I've seen it done like effectively. I read something Johnny wrote when I was a clerk and it said like, like two ships passing in the night. And I thought that was funny and effective. So, you know, <laughs> whatever. Don't knock it till you try it. I just, I don't know. <laughs> Mary? 
I'm really trying to think of funny moments with writing. I do remember one time as I think it was in the first year that I was licensed. It either like didn't, I didn't have to have this motion response reviewed for the first time. And I was so used to having that. And I just remember looking up and I already knew what the words meant, but I remember being so scared to file something. And I remember it was the word duplicative, duplicative discovery. And I just have a memory of looking up the word, even though I already knew what it meant to make sure that I did not file something with an incorrect word. And it, it was just, it was my own, you know, paranoia of not having someone review what I had wrote. But I remember that happening as soon as I was licensed. My favorite thing, because I get those emails too, and my favorite thing is to send back just the shortest email I possibly can. It's just like a, sounds good, thanks, said. That's all I need to <laughs> right. respond. I mean, that's that's certainly certainly possible, but... And you can check out our episode on email etiquette. <laughs> it's a fiery one. And Liz, the only other thing that I was thinking of as far as pet peeves, which again, Liz and I often partner up with some of the law clerks in the office. I remember one time there was a, a clerk who had the client's name wrong. Maybe it's just an oversight, but stuff like that, you know, you want to say, you don't even want to have to correct that. You just don't want it ever to happen again. And I think that there might've been many reasons why that had happened, but getting very obvious things incorrect when you're passing off a completed document to an attorney for review. Just, you know, it kind of makes you cringe when you're looking at it. That's a bad one. The pronoun issue is one that comes up a lot, too, when I can tell that they've clearly copied and pasted something, which, again, I encourage them. If, if you can and that saves time and that's more efficient and it's an argument that's worked before, feel free to copy and paste something. There's no point in reinventing the wheel, especially if I've directed you to whatever you are copying and pasting. But certainly go through and make sure that if the client is a woman and the pronoun is she and her, you have changed them all. Now, one may slip by, I understand that, but I've certainly gotten documents back from from law clerks where they changed the name the one time and then every other time the pronoun was clearly from whoever it was before. And I said, that just tells me you didn't look over it. Things happen. That's just, that's laziness. Certainly want to avoid that. Agree. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't wrap this up with sharing what we all know are judges' most extreme pet peeves. And that is when opposing counsel are being disrespectful to each other or using derogatory language to talk about the other counsel or, you know, dismissing their argument or point in a disrespectful way. Amy's not here today, as you all know, and if she was, she would tell you countless stories about having drinks or dinner or lunch with her friends who are judges who continually complain when they get very hostile briefing from attorneys. So, that is my last tidbit of advice as far as how to perfect your legal writing. So thanks, everyone, for joining us. We hope that by the end of this episode, you have some thoughts or tips about how to improve your writing, how to work with those who are writing for you, or how to improve when you are writing for others. Check us out on Spotify, Podbean, or Apple Podcasts. And our new episodes drop on Wednesdays. And you can join our conversation, leave us feedback, or find out more about us at heelsinthecourtroom.law. 
you can write us a really nice message using the tips that we have left here. Or don't. Use your grammar hammer before you press send. (laughs) Yeah, or don't. Just leave a five-star review. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Connect with Amy, Liz, Mary, Erica, or Elizabeth at heelsinthecourtroom.law.